The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Jillian said last month I defended my master's thesis at the McMaster Divinity College and it is my great pleasure to bring the, the sum of that work to you in a four-week sermon series uh, this month of May. Uh, it's four weeks because I wrote four chapters, and so that just seemed like a nice way to break it up. And uh, as part of that, I'm also going to be posting a discussion companion guide to go along with this sermon. It will be uh, sent out to you on Monday morning in a Google Doc that I will update each and every week uh, to give you extra resources, uh, questions, exercises, things to kind of chew on throughout the week. Um, and as always, I welcome any kinds of questions, thoughts, comments. Um, I've spent a lot of time on this, and I would really just love to talk about it. Um, so thank you for listening. You're here anyways. Good. So, I thought when I was writing my master's thesis to investigate the relationship between God, humanity, and creation. And in order to do that, I thought, well, let's start at the very beginning, because it's a very good place to start. So we start in Genesis 1. Because in Genesis 1, it sets the foundation for the relationship not only between us and God, but between God and his creation, and us and creation as well. When we read the opening chapters of Genesis, we can read them like a mythology. And I don't mean it in the sense of it's something made up and make-belief that, you know, we know that is not true but is fantastic in origin anyways, but rather a mythology, as Johnson Lees writes it. He says it's from these mythologies that are the essence and identity of reality, self, moral character, societal structure, and even the universe were most clearly understood through the identification of one's origin who we are, how we organize our life and structure, our day-to-day routines, our value systems, our very worldview stems from our concept of our origin. Whether it's our family of origin, our country of origin, or if we go all the way back to the very beginning, to Genesis 1, the origin of all of creation and humanity, to get a sense of who we are, who God is, and what creation is meant to be within this relationship. So Colin, if you wouldn't mind throwing up uh, the title slide there. Um, So I titled my thesis, A Biblical Worldview for Christian Identity and Participation in God's Reconciliation of All Things. Not exactly something that's going to fly off the shelves, but it gets the point across. So today we are going to look at God's good earth and understand how does God see his creation and how might we expect to interact with it more deeply. And creation serves a lot of wonderful purposes for us. Not only is it where we live, where we get our food, our resources for doing daily life, but also as the Belgic Confession tells us, it teaches us about God. For one of the ways that we know God is by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. For since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, God's eternal power and divinity. We look at creation 
so that we might learn something of God. And in learning something of God, we might also learn something of ourselves. And so I want to thank Jonathan for reading the entirety of Genesis 1. It's a bit repetitious, but that's important. Because we see after each and every day, God declares his creation is good. He looks out on all that he's made on each and every day. Each day where there was morning and there was evening, and he says, this is good. Now, the word good is perhaps a little overused in our culture and society. We can throw it on anything, and it just is more of a a measurement of something's quality. It's good or it's bad. Even bad pizza is still good. But it doesn't really get at something deeper. God's not looking at his creation and simply saying, yeah, it's, it's good. It has a far deeper meaning. For the Hebrew word good, tov. It is ascribing something of relationship value. It is looking at the relationship between two items and is saying that they are in good standing together. They live well together. They understand and communicate. They are good. And we see at the end of Genesis 1 that God declares that all he has created is very good. And there might be an initial temptation to look at this one change. For in the previous five days, and after he created the animals, God said creation was good, but after he created mankind, he said it was very good. And we might think, well, don't we make creation very good? And I want to challenge that type of human-centered thinking and approach to Scripture and say that it's not so much that we and our presence is what makes creation very good, but it is the completeness For when you're putting together a puzzle, the last piece that goes in, it is not the last piece that is very good, but it is the fact that it fits into and completes the puzzle that makes it a very good thing. It's simply one part of the whole, but because it is together, everything is where it should be and as it should be, then it is very good. Because all the pieces of God's creation are where they are supposed to be because every single piece is exactly where God has placed it. He creates this full picture of his glory. And it is very good when everything is together. In this very good, we might understand it by the order at which God creates it. Because if we look at the Genesis narrative... He creates all the creatures according to their kinds, all the seed-bearing and fruitful plants according to their kind. Everything has a purpose. Everything belongs to its own kind. They have their own spheres, their own biomes to operate. Polar bears belong to the north, penguins to the south, the lions to the savannas, and the jaguars to the jungles. Everything belongs to then its own kind, its own families. It belongs to particular places. If we look out and study the world of ecology, nothing is in its own place by accident. Everything in creation has a purpose. Everything from the great blue whale all the way down to the tiniest of microbes in your gut. It is there for a reason. It has a purpose. It produces for the good of all creation. And we know that when everything is where it's supposed to be. When our ecosystems are at the most healthy, it is very good. I think one of the most classic examples in ecology is looking at an experiment in Yellowstone Park. 
Due to extreme hunting and protecting of tourists, the wolf populations had been absolutely decimated. As a result, the deer populations rose dramatically and began to eat all the plants they could get their mouths on. And because there were no wolves, the waters of the streams were suddenly good and safe places to go for a drink and to eat. No longer did the deer have to be afraid to eat in these open places. And as a result, they began to eat more and more plants. And with less plant life, there was less food available for other creatures. And so, the stream beds, they began to overflow and to flood because there were no plants on the edges to keep their waters at bay, causing wide-scale degradation. So, you may think, what is the solution? Well, to reintroduce wolves. And with the reintroduction of wolves, they began to limit and control the deer population in a healthy way, which brought back new plant life to the stream beds, which brought back songbirds and nesting birds to their long-destroyed homes. It's a small example of how something that maybe we don't think is great, such as having an apex predator in our backyards, actually leads to more flourishing and creation. Everything has a purpose and a place, and so we could say that it is very good. And part of that goodness is having the resources in space to be fruitful, to multiply. For we know that in order to bring about the next generation, you need to have somewhere to put them. You need to have food to feed them. No one really wants to bring the next generation into crowded conditions or a life of famine. And so God's good earth, the very goodness, is about all of his creation, from the largest to the small, humanity included, respecting each other, not taking more than they need, living in community, and using all of those good and green plants in a way that also honors the other. Now this, of course, sounds very utopic, and it is, because we know, if we turn to chapter 3, that sin frustrates this very existence, this very harmony, this very way of living in good relationship. Adam and Eve sin against God and break relationship, and as a result, the whole of creation is corrupted. Howard Snyder writes that there are four relationships broken by Genesis 3. There's humanity's relationship with God. There's humanity's relationship within themselves. There's humanity's relationship with each other and also with creation. And we're going to explore that a little bit in the coming weeks. But just keep that thought in your head. That is very good as God has created creation. As good as the relationship was, it is corrupted. But it does not mean that God has abandoned one over the other. It does not mean that because humanity has sinned and creation is suffering the consequences, that God has decided that it's not worth caring about creation and to only focus on humanity. Because God is still intimately concerned with his good earth. And we see that throughout all of Scripture. And so we're going to do a little bit of Bible flipping here. So if you've been practicing your sword drills, now is the time to prove that you know your stuff. So Colin, we're going to throw up that, uh, that slide. Yeah, and we're going to kind of linger here for a little bit. I've been working on uh, a way of thinking about God's plan for salvation as it pertains to the earth. 
And so there are three sort of steps in this path that we're going to look at. The first will be the garden, is the Garden of Eden, which we've already explored. And we're going to take a journey to the promised land and try and understand how do we get from this fantastic garden, which Adam and Eve are supposed to spread out to the ends of the earth, to this focus on the promised land, and how that eventually moves to our understanding of the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21 to 22. So we're going from Genesis 1 all the way to the very end in short order today, so fasten your seatbelts. And so the way that I see it is that as we look through Scripture, we might be tempted to narrow our focus from this grand cosmic scale of the Garden of Eden down to the Promised Land, thinking very narrowly about a specific people in a specific time in a specific place, limiting the scope of God's salvific work then to just the people of Israel, and then we forget the broad scope at which God brings everything back into right relationship. And so, uh, if you kind of are tracking with me a little bit here, the way I see it is it focuses in on the promised land as a microcosm, a small piece of the plan before Jesus comes and expands it once again to the cosmic scope. Colin, do you want to flip to the next slide? Yes. So, it's this idea that the Garden of Eden was meant to be something that expanded to all of creation, that this perfect place of existence, this very good relationship, would exist to the ends of the earth. But that got frustrated by sin, so God began to enact a plan of salvation. And there are a couple of pit stops, a couple of places where God reiterates relationship through covenant to his people. The first is Noah. So if you join me in Genesis chapter 9, we see that after the flood, in which God does save the animals, God does care about his creation, not just about humanity, but brings them all into this ark to save them. God, I'm in the wrong part of the Bible. God, he cares about his whole creation, and he reiterates his covenant. So for in Genesis chapter 9, we see that God reiterates the covenant of fruitfulness. For in Genesis chapter 9, 7, he reiterates to Noah, he says, Be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply upon the earth and increase upon it. So once again, we get that promise of God wanting us to flourish, wanting all of his creation to have the time and the space and the resources to bring about the next generation, to live together. But it's not perfect, because just earlier in, the ch in chapter 9, in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons by saying, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. But here's where we get that hint of imperfection, that the relationship is not as good as it should be. He says, the fear and dread of you will fall upon the beasts of the earth and on the birds in the sky and on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands, just as I gave every green plant to you. So the relationship is not very good anymore, but God still has a commitment to all of his creation, all of his earth. For as God is talking here about the earth, he's using the Hebrew word aretz, which is not just about the ground and the physical nature of what we stand upon, but it's about the whole scope of the entire planet. So even here, as God is focusing in a little bit more narrowly on Noah and his sons, he still has the whole earth in mind. And we can continue to see how God keeps the whole earth in mind, even as he narrows his focus to a particular people. If you turn to Genesis chapter 12, just a few pages later, we meet Abraham, the famous patriarch. And God 
he narrows in on Abraham. This is where we start to get that narrow focus, where we might not be thinking about the whole of creation almost until the end of the book, but it never, it never escapes God's thought. Because God says to Abraham, he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And so the plan is that through Abraham, through coming into this promised land and turning Israel into a great nation, God will have another starting point for spreading out his blessing, this right relationship, this very good quality on his entire earth. But it was not going to happen that way perfectly, hence the dotted line. That was the plan, but it never came to full fruition. Because while they came into the promised land, while Israel took hold of it, just as we would have done, they messed it up royally. Because the goodness in their land, the flourishing that we look for, the fruitfulness, the ability to farm and to herd, to build homes and live in safety and prosperity was dependent on Israel's obedience. The success of creation depended on Israel's good relationship, not only with God themselves, but also the land. If you would turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7, we would read in verse 13. God's promise, his initial promise to Israel is they're just about to cross over the rivers of Jordan and take possession of this land that God promised to Abraham, this land that would serve as an archetype of good flourishing and very good relationship. Moses tells the Israelites in verse 13, he says, He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the crops of your land, your grain, new wine, and olive oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. In the land he swore to your ancestors, you will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men and women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep you free from disease. He will not inflict the horrible diseases that you knew in Egypt, but will inflict them on those you hate. So God is letting Israel know that the plan for them is to live in a very good land, a land that is fruitful, that if they live in good relationship with themselves, with God, and with the very earth that they are meant to inhabit and farm, that they will flourish. There will be no lack. Even their animals will succeed and thrive because God cares about them too. But we didn't, wouldn't have to turn far in the pages of Scripture to know that this is not how it turned out. In fact, we don't have to go out far outside of our doors to know that we are not living in that kind of land. That things are not very good. Because Israel sinned time and time again against God. They broke their covenant promises time and time again against him. And so God was forced to account for it. And God called creation to witness against them. Just like in a courtroom, that if you're trying to prove someone's guilt, you call witnesses forward to witness against someone else's sin and wrongdoing. And the prophets have a very scathing record against Israel. Or if you would turn with me to Micah chapter 6, verse 1. The prophet is bringing God's case against Israel for their sins. 
He says, listen to what the Lord says. He says, stand up and plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Because it is not just God that Israel has sinned against. It is the very earth itself. It is their neighbors. And so God is calling all of creation to listen to just how far they have messed it up. Isaiah picks up this this call as well and brings it even a little bit more close. For in Isaiah 24, chapter 5, the prophet says that the earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broke the everlasting covenant. It is not just that they worshipped idols, but they treated the land poorly. They exploited it, turning it for profit, turning it for gain, chasing out animals from their home to make things more comfortable, to make massive houses, as massive as they could back then, leaving not only other Israelites poor, but also the very land itself. Because when God finally had enough of their sin, he brought them into exile. And when he took Israel out of the land, this was actually a good thing for the natural earth. For Second Chronicles 36.21 says that the land enjoyed Sabbath rest all the time of its desolation. It rested 70 years. 70 years being the time that the people of Israel and Judah were in Babylon. The fact that Israel was taken out of the land was good for creation should cause us to stand up and think about how we treat our own natural resources. Because of the disobedience of Israel was so great towards their earth that it was great for the birds and the trees that Israel was gone. Well, that's a heavy charge against their people. Because God was not only concerned with his relationship with them, but he was concerned with the land and knew that the earth was tired and it had enough. Israel was not obeying the laws of God and caring for all of creation, from the great to the small. And so the earth needed saving. And so God gave it a moment's rest. And so, creation waits for its final salvation. And that, of course, comes through Jesus. And that's something that I'm going to have to ask you to just put a pin in with me for a moment. We're going to explore that greatly at depth next week. But know that the ministry of Christ, it follows in this path. It follows in this path of seeking flourishing, of seeking wellness, seeking a restoration of the very good relationship of God, creation, and humanity. And we're going to just talk a little bit about where that's going, to the new heavens and the new earth. Because nowhere in Scripture, and I will challenge you to find it if you can, nowhere in Scripture does God say he's going to destroy this earth. Nowhere in Scripture do we get the sense that this is not going to be our forever home. All of Scripture points to the fact that we are going to spend eternity here because God cares about this natural earth, or this earth that he created in Genesis 1. And Howard Snyder, I think, puts it so well. For at the very end of Scripture, in Revelation 21, 22, he says the climax the climax of the story, the climax of God's plan of salvation in Revelation 21 and 22, where we see the holy city of Jerusalem descending to earth, not souls ascending to heaven. At the very end of Scripture, 
God comes back. Just as at the very beginning he dwelt in the Garden of Eden among humanity, the plan is that he is returning, that he is bringing his heavenly city down here to live among us forever, to live among his creation. Nothing of our natural world is going away except sin. We see that in the story of Noah. When God flooded the earth to get rid of the sin, he saved the animals. He preserved the natural world so that when Noah and his family and all of the creatures got back out of that ark, they could flourish again, spread out, multiply. God's plans always include the endurance of the earth, a restoration of that threefold relationship of God, creation, and humanity. The earth is sticking around. It matters to God, and so over the next four weeks, we're going to explore exactly how much it should matter to us. Because I'm not going to stand up here, and I'm not going to tell you what you should do when you leave this place. Because we've been talking about things like climate change and environmental degradation for so long now that it's no mystery that we know some of the steps we might take to care for our earth. I'm not here to tell you that. I'm here to take you on a trip throughout Scripture to understand why we should care. Why we should care beyond the fact of, well, we just live here. But the fact that our care for the earth comes from something far greater, it comes from our very origin, our very center of our being. That if we profess to love God, we must also profess to love what he loves. And that is creation. It's sticking around. God is making sure of it. And he calls us to live well in the land that he has given to us. Because if we live well for God, it includes living well in relationship with our land, and we might just see things turn around. So this week, what little homework I might give you would be to just sit outside, to get to know the places you live, to look at the grass, the flowers, to listen to the birds, to sit out on your deck at night and hear the frogs chirp away their springtime songs, to ask God to show you how he sees his creation, this creation that he cares about so much that he saved in the flood, that he made covenant relationships with, that he designed to give rest and well-being to simply sit and spend time seeking God's will for the restoration of relationship, to see creation as God sees it. Because he loves it so much. And this does not take away from his love for you or his love for me. It does not take away from the mission of making disciples of all nations. We don't have to divide our attentions to the detriment of one another, but we do have to pay attention to all that God wants us to pay attention to. And that includes his very good earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us a great and fantastic world to live in, a world rich in resources that are meant to be used, a world rich in space that is meant to be lived in. But Heavenly Father, forgive us for the ways that we have corrupted your great gift with our own selfish and vain ambition. 
that we sometimes forget that creation is as much a part of our relationship with you as anything else. Help us to see your good earth the way that you do, to see it as something that deserves rest, that deserves care, that deserves to be known just as our brothers and sisters. Help us to understand how to care for this good earth so that we might live in a relationship that is very good. Amen.